Hi, this is Pastor Frank at Frank's Bible Study. I'm making this video specifically because I don't really like doing apologetics unless it's an environment that people are ready to receive it and not do apologetics where people are going to rebut everything that I say uh, based on their knowledge of the Bible or their knowledge of history or their knowledge of archaeology or anything like that. And, and people tend to believe what they see and hear on the History Channel, which is amazing because it's a very limited view. It's a microscopic view of somebody's um, dissertation and not seeing the whole panoramic view of, of the whole evidence of everything that's on that particular subject. So I don't really like trying to change people's mind. I'd like to present new things so that they are able to determine what the truth is or what somebody is just using inference to create a story that's not true. So I'm going to take you through something that I went through with somebody recently as a rebuttal or an apologetic towards the creation. Now the creation stories, there's many of them, but I'm going to go through this really quick. Uh, if those who want to hear more about this, I'll make a second video. But I think this will suffice for those because some of this gets pretty deep, but I don't try to go too deep so everyone can grasp what I'm saying. So again, this is a friendly rebuttal. It's not, I'm not trying to correct anybody. What I'm trying to do is to correct the lies or to correct the um, insinuations and just because History Channel says it doesn't mean that that's the concrete truth. Uh, archaeologists find things all the time and then they find things on top of those things and it changes their story. So these are some of the things that I like to do. I've done this in the past. This is actually something that I've done a long time ago. But I'm going to do it again only because people don't know that I'm an apologist. That's what I was into before I became a Bible teacher and uh, teaching Christocentric uh, theology. All right, here we go. Now, there are many ancient creation stories. There are so many cultures that have creation stories. There are so many embellishments or you want to call them ripoffs or plagiarizing. There are ways to really tell whether these stories make sense. Uh, there's tests that you could perform on this by asking some very easy questions. And that's what I'm trying to do here, is to ask the right questions in order to get to the truth. Now, because everybody has a creation story, creation story in society or in different ages of, of world history, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes by trying to bring this video out and bring light to the creation stories. I'm not trying to step on anyone's culture or anyone's belief system. I'm only trying to present truth. Now, truth, whether or not it is Christian or Judeo-Christian, truth is truth. No matter how you look at it, it's objective, not subjective. So I want to be able to bring these types of 
things to light only because of the challenge that was put to me in an indirect way. Now, let's move on here. Scientists are poor philosophers. The reason why I have this on here is because scientists will only give a story or a narrative or present facts or present their finds in archaeology or whatever they find in chemistry or whatever it is in the, in the cosmos and through a telescope or what have you. They give information and based on that information that they get, which is limited because of the discovery of the telescope was less than, I think, what, a thousand years ago? And even then, they didn't understand what they saw. Flat Earth, round Earth, they were just, there's so many things that, that we have come to knowledge on, which proves my point. Now, as in the discoveries that scientists make, they leave out the most important thing, and that is to reason to a truth of what they find. So they build on a separate issue of their own faith, of their own belief system, of what they think. And what you, there is always something that breeds that type of thinking that's behind their belief system and how they apply this. Normally, they apply it without a God, a deity. In this case, it's going to be uh, without the God of the Bible, the God of the 66 books of canon and scripture, as we know, is the Holy Bible today. Scientists don't know how to deal with some of the questions that are posed to them only because they haven't thought it all the way through. They're only building their narrative and their story based on what they find, based on what they see. But as you know, scientists discover more things and more things and more things. And what it does is it undermines their first thesis or undermines their first thought, undermines the things that they thought were the truth, and they change their story. Their story is constantly changing because what they're finding is constantly revealing truth. Let's go to the next one. For instance, the Pilot Stone, found in 1961. Now, the Pilot Stone is... A huge find for Christianity. Uh, There's a lot of skeptics at the time prior to 1961 that said that Pilate never existed. There was nothing that was recorded of Pontius Pilate. And that because he didn't exist, and he's a large part of the New Testament, or at least the four Gospels, that basically had a lot to do with Christ and the crucifixion, his trial, and that this figure, Pontius Pilate, at, up until 1961, was just a ghost, unprovable. And then when this pilot stone was found, it changed everything. It validated that he did exist. One more thing that Christians have been saying forever, 2,000 years, and that it is true. This is one. Now, I hate to even imply this. Like, it almost seems like how many other discoveries that have been made that would prove the case of Christianity that have been destroyed, that have not brought to light 
just so that there's an agenda of these scientists and what they want to say, what they want to prove, probably just to get funding, so they can continue their work. But more than likely that has happened. Let's move on. So there's four questions of truth that one would have to ask about what they believe. Number one, origin. Where did it all begin? Where did we come from? Where did everything we see comes from? It comes from somewhere. So what we do understand is that there has to be a beginning. Why? It's because we're born and there has to be an ending. Why? Because we die. So we understand beginning and end. What we don't understand and can never understand is eternity. That would imply that there's more to know. And because there's no beginning and no end, and it's just eternity's past, eternity's future, that there's so much to know that we are just not even at the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even gotten to the iceberg yet. That would imply there's more knowledge out there. But what we do have, we argue over. Okay? So, origin. This brings in the Judeo-Christian belief of God creating everything. So our creation is also involves us, we being created by God. Or there's alternative creation stories by other gods in different cultures. So origin is very, very important. This is how you're going to know the rest of these two to four. By knowing the rest of these, you're going to be able to make this test even that more stringent. Okay? Number two, morality. What is right and wrong? Creation stories only tell us about beginnings, but they don't tell you about the right and wrong aspect. They don't tell you where these code of ethics and morals come from. All they tell you is what is created. The morality aspect is a solid, hardcore evidence of what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what we keep, what we throw away, what is good behavior, bad behavior. And all of these things that God has planted that inside of us, inside our heart to know, which is should be common sense, but sense doesn't seem to be so common. It is very hard to explain morality, especially when you attribute it to a God that gives it to you. And I'll explain, I'll go into that later. Three, meaning. In the creation stories, alternative creation stories of other cultures, other religions and people of the earth, where is the meaning? Why are we here? What is the point what is, what is your meaning in life? What do you, or why were you created? To do what? What's your position? How to help each other? Or even to help yourself? So what's the meaning? This is a, a gigantic question. Number four, destiny. Where do we go when we die? Some say we go nowhere. We just die. We go into the nothing. And when people tell me that, I said, well, explain nothing without using the word nothing. It's impossible. 
Where do we go when we die? Do we go somewhere? Are we made up of spirit and body? Or are we just made up of body? Destiny is an extremely important question because when you die, you ever see people who die, they're afraid because they don't want to. God created us in the beginning not to die. Now, I can tell you why people dye their hair and use wrinkle cream and do all these things to stay young, stay in shape and work out and all those things because they don't want to get old because gray hair and wrinkles is a signification, a significant, a significant, <laughs> sorry. It's a sign of decay. So our destiny, if not heaven or not the new heavens and the new earth or some place where we are continuing, then where then what is the answer? You see, now when you read these creation stories all over the world and, and, and the ones that are made popular, because some are actually not even brought up, some are put on high and some are like not and some are like at the bottom and it's like, who, who, who's anybody to do that? But that's what they do, depending on the culture. So the more sophisticated the culture that some people hold to, whether they be Eurocentric or uh, African-centric or, you know, uh, or, or, you know, Asian-centric, who, who is to say that that's what story is more important and it gets more press, that gets more notoriety? But yet all these questions have to be asked when it comes to this creation story. It has to be, because... If you have a beginning, well, therefore you have an end. And all these four questions about truth are valid to ask. Now, if they don't correlate with reality, then it is more than enough to say, is it valid or is it, is it real? Is it, is it something that is just coming out of the mind of a human being in its origin and not divine given from knowledge of the ages. So let's move on. Now, Anunnaki are a group of deities who appear in the mythological tradition of the ancient Sumerians, Akkadians, Assyrians, and Babylonians. Now, all of these ancient civilizations all have a creation story. And they share this. All right. Now, just because they share, we got Sumerians 1, Akkadians 2, Assyrians 3, and Babylonians 4. These are four major civilizations, okay, in the Middle East, in that region, which is, there's a lot of history there. There is a lot that's attributed to them. And this is something that I'm not trying to say that it's not necessary, but I am saying that they did exist. They did for sure add to human history and that they contributed in some way, somehow. But there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of statements that I'm going to make as we move forward. But I just want to bring these names and these term, this terminology, people, places to your attention because this is what is being said. Let's move on. 
only in the Judean Christian creation story, love precedes life. Okay. The Judean, when I say Judean Christian, that means that Judaism or the Jews, their history is Christian history. Christianity is born out of the womb of Judaism. So everything that the Jews believe, Christians believe, prior to Christ's Messiahship, we believe. Now, anything after Christ's Messiahship, of course, there's an issue with Judaism not believing that Jesus was the Messiah, but that's another story. So only in the Judean Christian faith or creation story, love precedes life. What that means is this, that God is described with three distinct parts, but is one. Now, I would expect if God is who he is and what we think about him is so grand and majesty and great, I, there's no way that my finite mind would be able to understand him and his being. But we could be told about what he is. Now, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to Genesis 1. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was loving each other. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loved the Father. Now, this love precedes life. In every other creation story, it's life first and then love. And this is something that is in, in every belief system, that only in the Judean Christian story, creation story, and faith, love is before life. And in every other story about creation and, and belief and faith and, and, and ideology and um, worldview, it's always Life first, and then love. Now God, as a deity, monotheistic Jews, Christians are monotheistic, but yet they believe in his being as being Trinitarian. And like I said, he wouldn't be majestical, or he wouldn't be... If we understood him, it, we would put him in a box. And since we can't, we, we have, don't even have the knowledge to do that. But as for those who believe in only one God, that's called a monad. And a monad is somebody or some, is a God that is one. So when a one God creates something, then they are doing it out of need. They're doing it out of necessity. They're doing it out of a way to be praised. And without that, they cannot be who they are. So they create subjects in order to be who they are. That's not what God did. And so that's the difference between describing who God is in other creation stories or describing who God is in definition, that he's unlike any other God. And I'll get to that as we move on. Let's go to the next one. Okay, one of the major problems with alternative creation stories is, number one, 
deity personalities are limited to human personalities. Now, what I'm what I'm saying is is that that if you have in the, in this whole idea of the Anunnaki, they're they're more than one god. There are deities with a small g, god with a small g, and these gods have personalities like human beings. They get jealous. Um, they they bicker between one another. Um, they uh, have uh, jealousy and and they're you know they're they're little tiffs with each other um bigot uh, or um not bigot i'm sorry um when they argue back and forth and they uh disagree with one another this is something that is um totally human so you find this, anybody can write, God is like this based on what they have experienced in their own daily lives and with other people, with their own relatives. But yet these people write these creation stories with these deities with the same kind of personalities and limitations of human beings. And that's the truth. You could read all of the things that is supposed to be, you know, creation and and the truth but but you see that there's a lot of holes in it when you add philosophy to it when you add this test and this is why scientists are poor philosophers number two the creation stories use earthly metaphors that pre-exist the earth's creation now being native american i've heard native american creation stories and they begin with a bird but that also precedes the creation, uh, or it's actually the creation has not yet, but how would you know about a bird if nothing was created? Or there was a turtle, or there was something earthy, okay? This is a, a gigantic problem, okay? Now, the creation stories used, they use earthly metaphors, now, the metaphors in a story are used sometimes to maybe mean something else. But in this case, they don't have anything else. Why? It's because they don't have that kind of wisdom. So what they use is what they know. So this is how you could tell this, this narrative was not created before the earth. This narrative was created after the creation because they're using earthly things. It doesn't take long to figure that out. Now, I have down here water. In this particular Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, their, their creation story starts with water, but yet the earth is not created. So water doesn't exist, but yet it comes from water. Now, in the Bible, it says that God, and, and I'll, well, I only want to create, or I only want to be able to cite this one, and then we'll, we'll get into it. In Genesis one one, it says, "In the in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth," which means that water didn't exist; that He created it from nothing. He didn't use material that was there. Okay, it came from His words. So his words are so powerful that it came into existence. But that's not the story with 
the Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian. Their story is, is that there was something already there, and these Anunnaki created it with what was there. But yet, that's post-Earth. That's something that was earthy, water. And then it goes on family. Okay? Family. It talks about one having sex with the other god, and then they had a kid, and, and it's like, well, wait a minute. This is the spiritual realm. Spirits can't have children. Humans can have children. Humans are procreative. Spirits are not. But yet, they want you to believe that spirits can do this. Uh, Greek mythology is full of this. That's why it's called mythology. So you have this problem with family. Maybe brothers with their um, sibling rivalries. You got parents that maybe argue. You have, uh, you know, uncles, aunts. You have all these issues. This isn't what we know here and here and today. We have those problems now, but yet they're pawning that off as a creation story. And the next one, human anatomy. Mouths, hands, feet, you know. It, all this is all earthy. And these are the things that you could test this to show that these creation stories have really no validity. It, it really defies science. But yet scientists are trying to promote this story, which is crazy. Okay? Number three. The alternative creation narrative contains morality and ethics before it was ever known. So you have the word hate in there. You have the word... Um, you have different words that, that connote morality and ethics. You know, being angry, being jealous, uh, being having these emotions that, that are totally human. But yet, it is, is it made really to be able to have the reader connect to the gods in order for them to feel like they could understand? But really, it's the other way around. God is so uh, knowledgeable in his wisdom that he really has to give us things that are very simplistic in order for us to understand in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty but what we end up here with this alternative creation is that the gods are like us which is not the case in Christianity or Judaism so when they say this parallels or it's close it's not even remotely close they're two different worlds, two different belief systems, two completely different black and white opposites, polar opposites. This has nothing to do with Judaism or Christianity. Number four, the eternal spiritual understanding is of human understanding from a finite position. Now, the aspect of the spiritual realm is obviously non-corporeal. Humans don't exist in the spiritual realm. The finite body does not exist exist in the spiritual realm. Spirits are the ones who exist in the spiritual realm. But yet, they are coming from this understanding. So, it's really easy to see that a human being is writing this to the understanding of human behavior, human understanding and human encounters and 
human in, uh, uh, experience, experiential. And so this is, it doesn't take long to find out. And you could apply what I'm saying here to any creation story. And you'll see that this is the truth. Now, one thing I want to be able to explain, which is very fast, very simple, is here I have three words, Torah, Devim, and Ketuvim. These are Hebrew words or Jewish words, Jew, Jew, Jewish words, if you want to call them that. And I highlighted here uh, T, the N, and the K. The T means law, the law, the Torah. The N, the Nevi, means the prophets. And then the, the K is the writings, which is the Ketuvim. So the law, obviously, is the first five books of the Bible. Okay. And then you have the prophets, which is the, all the books of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And then you have the writings, the Ketuvim, which are like Psalms, Proverbs, and such. And so this forms a word called, an acronym called the Tanakh. Now, the Tanakh, or the Pentateuch, or the Old Testament, so this is where we get that from, and why we call it that, but it's really originally called the Tanakh. The Tanakh was written over a course of 1,500 years, or, oh, I'm sorry, of 35 authors. So, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim was written over the course of 1,500 years. Now, these authors didn't know each other, but God knew them, and they knew God. So they were writing what God told them to write, not by their own, but was inspired. Over 35 authors. Now, when do you get 35 authors of 35 different books, of 35 different eras of, of anything corroborating something as one narrative. So I wrote all one narrative about one figure, the Messiah or Mashiach, Jesus Christ. So in every single book, there is an allusion or uh, alluding to, I'm sorry, an alluding to a Messiah, the chosen one, an anointed one, a king, a savior, all throughout the Old Testament. And as we learn, as the unfolding mystery tells us in the New Testament, that it's Jesus Christ. Now, again, if the Bible was written by these sages, these very pious and intelligent, wise men, how could they pull this off over a course of 1,500 years? you really would have to come up with some serious, elaborate story to disprove that. There are no missing books of the Bible. The books are left out are not inspired by the Holy Spirit and are not supporting the narrative of the Messiah, Moshiach. So I've heard a lot of people say, oh yeah, why isn't the, you know, this book and that book not in the Bible at all? Why is it 66 books of the canon of Scripture? Why, why don't they add this or add that? It's because those stories and those the writings in those books, I have checked out probably about maybe 10% of them. 
and they are way off in left field. You could see them for yourself, but they don't lend anything about Jesus Christ, anything about the Messiah, anything about Moshiach, the anointed one, the Holy One of God, the one that is going to save the world. There's nothing like that in there. It just talks about, it chronicles somebody's personal memoirs in some of the books, and the other books are so left field that in, in the spiritual aspect, there's no way you could really understand them and validate them other than from those own writings, which the main body uh, and a mainline part of the Bible does not support. And then people will read into Scripture what they think it means, and really that's just a bad way to exegete the Word of God. So there's really zero connection to anything that people say that the Bible has to do with this or has to do with that. It comes from this era or that era, really. Then why does it support just this one figure? And why doesn't all the other writings support this one figure? And this is why they were exited and why they were not put in through the canon of Scripture and considered pseudepigrapha. Easy fix. Okay, now we have Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So nothing was there. Everything in the heavens that we see in the sky, everything that we see in space is when he created that. All the stars, all the suns, all the planets, and then the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. And darkness was on the face of the deep. Why? Because there was no sun. Not yet. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God created all of this in verse 1 and 2. Then God said, let there be light. Okay, so there's the sun. Now, as you know, light travels at the speed of light. So you have this, the, the sun radiating like a light bulb, you turn it on, click, there it goes on, and then it takes the speed of light, time to travel to the earth, and then it says here in verse 4, or in verse 3, it says, and then there was light. That makes sense, totally scientific. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, which means that he started spinning the earth on its axis. God called the light day and the darkness he called night, so the evening of the morning were the first day. Now, I could go on and on with this, okay? And this is something that I think that most people don't know. But yet, when they hear these people from the History Channel and these other places say these things, it's incredible how they'll just be, kind of cower back and say, oh my gosh, this is too hard for me to, to do a rebuttal to. Interesting. Now here in Genesis chapter 4, now Adam knew his knew Eve, his wife, and they conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord and also... of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Verse 6, 
So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will not be accepted. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel, and it came to pass when they were in the field, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, this is what I want to cover. This narrative is extremely old. This is the very first family on the earth in detail. The very first man, the very first woman, Adam and Eve, and then they had children. And here it says, and you have to pay attention here, here it says that they had two types of ways to feed themselves. One is of the field and one is of the animal husbandry, taking care of sheep. And so this is very, very provincial, it's very um, agron agronomy is what it is, it's agronomy. And here it says they brought an offering. So this means that they were sacrificing unto the Lord. Now, animal sacrifice, okay, goes back a long ways. But here, the Jews are claiming that animal sacrifice is their very first way to honor God. So there, it depends on how you are going to represent a worldview when here it says that Cain and Abel were sacrificing to God, which is the very first sacrifice to God in the sense of we know sacrifices. Now it's not the very first blood that was shed because the very first blood that was shed is when God had took animal skins to cover Adam and Eve. That was, some, some animal had to die to get that hide to cover them. So that was the very first bloodshed. Here it is something that is more, it's thought out. It's, it's a conclusion to what they want to do to give thanks to God. Now, what other civilization is older than this first sacrifice to a monotheistic God that were told by their parents who he was, by Adam and Eve. They both knew very, very well who he was based on their condition. Why are we here? Why aren't we living over there? Uh, the story is very clear. So this story that as we read all throughout the chapters of the book of Genesis, is when we reach the writer of these happenings. Because Moses wasn't here in chapter 4. He wasn't in chapter 1. He wasn't in 2 or 3. Moses was born way later. But yet we're learning about year 1, year 2, year 3, year 4, year 5. Okay? Of the beginning of time. But yet Moses wasn't here, but he wrote these happenings down. You have the very first death here. The very first family here. And then as you read later on here, it talks about how Cain built a city. 
And by building this city, this is where all of the technology came from. Okay? Now, and I'll prove it to you right here. It says, And Lamech took himself two wives and named one of them Ada. One is Ada. And the name of the second was Zila. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Okay? So he created that. He created tents, which means that you have to create a loom, which means you need wool, which means you make thread and you weave and then you make linen and then you make tents. And then livestock, more than likely, there were sheep. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the harp and flute, the first musician to make instruments, musical instruments. He's the father of that. Verse 22, and for Zila, as she bore Tubal Cain, an instructor on every craftsman in bronze and iron. So, metallurgy. What precedes this? Nothing. And I can go on and on and on about this, but I just want to show you. Now let's move on to Moses. Now here in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1, I'm going to read down until we get to a place where this answers some of the questions. And Moses went and spake the words unto Israel and said unto them, I am a hundred and twenty years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord hath said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan, which is Jordan River. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee as the Lord hath said. And the Lord shall do unto them as he did to Sion, and Og, kings of the Amorites, and unto the land which them that whom he destroyed. And the Lord God gave them up before your face, that ye may do unto them according unto the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong, of good courage, fear not, and nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that, that doeth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Moses and Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, In the sight of Israel, be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with the people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and that shall cause them to inherit. And the Lord, he it is that doeth go before thee, he will be there with he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests and the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the feast of tabernacles. Now, there's a, a lot going on here. Number one, Moses wrote the four books of the Bible, which is called the Torah the law, which is the book of Genesis. Um, we have like all the, the, whatever the Bible that we have, which we don't call it the Torah. Christians, we call it the Pentateuch. Okay. So Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, here, I want to point something out. As we have in verses 1, verses 2, 
verse 3. Okay, verse 4. Verse 5 and verse 6. These are all directional scriptures that he has told the children of Israel. He has told Joshua. Okay. It says here in verse 3, The Lord God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee. And thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee as the Lord hath said. Now, Joshua was a warrior, a valorous man, as the Bible says. And it needed to be that way because these people were not going to give up their land just because some god, some tribal god, nomad god, said so. And it says this is so what they did already to these guys, Sion and Og and the king of the Amorites, and whom land they whom they he destroyed. And he says, Take courage, be strong. Now, one of the things I want to point out here is that God had promised them a land. And in order to possess this land, they had to be obedient to be able to take it. Why? Why couldn't God just go in there and just wipe out these people? No, he did, but he used Joshua to do it. They weren't getting, like I said, free will and volition is extremely powerful. So here, it says that when Moses wrote the law, he delivered unto the priests and the sons of Levi. This is, if you want to know your Old Testament, you need to read all of these chapters. You need to read these books. You need to read the Torah. And the land that God had promised them, the promised land, is the same land that the Jews are on today. Now, here's one of the main points I want to point out when it comes to the creation story that is the, is the gigantic narrative of Judaism and Christianity. One thing left out of this story, Jesus would not make sense. We have the Anunnaki, our group of deities who appear in the mythological traditions of the ancient Sumerians, Akkadians, Assyrians, and Babylonians. Now, I want to ask a question. Where are these deities now? Where are the Anunnaki? Where are the people that supported them? Where are the Sumerians? Where are the Akkadians? Where are the Assyrians? And where are the Babylonians? Where is their civilizations at? Where, where are their, their traditions? Where is their religion? Where are their followers? Where, why aren't they a, the fourth largest religion in the world? Because the three major largest religions in the world is Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But where, is the, where are these guys at? The Romans rose to power. Gone. Just ruins. The Greeks rose to power. Ruins. Gone. The Aztecs, the Incas, the Mayans rose to power. Gone. You see, you have to start thinking back at all these things. Where are these people now? Where is this religion now? Where is this belief now? Where are these gods now? These are major questions. But if you ask the question, where are the Jews now? They're some of the richest people on earth. They have their own country. 
where the very same land that God promised them in the Word of God, in the Bible, they, they are occupying the very land that they said that was promised to them by their God. And they are militaristically independent. Nobody is going to go in there and wipe them out. Why? Well, you can speculate all you want, but it's because of God. But where are these guys? You see, and this is, this is some of the things that I have to ask these questions. I have to get a little rough on this section only because of the farce and the, the imagination it takes to get to this place where you say that this Anunnaki is a rival to God, and it's not. It's not even close. The philosophical aspect of this creation story is it's less than kindergarten. It doesn't take much thought. And so my test to people are, if, if the Ten Commandments or the Bible was written by just very pious, scholarly, wise men, and that's all that it was written by, I and mean, that's your description of what you think the Bible was written by. And I give this challenge to anybody, anywhere. The first Ten Commandments of the Torah, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai that God gave Moses, written by his finger on stone tablets that they put in the Ark of the Covenant, along with a few other articles. The rest of the Torah, there's 613 laws in Judaism. Minus 10 would be 603. The 603 laws are predicated off the Ten Commandments. You can read it for yourself and see. The first Ten Commandments are the most powerful. Now, I challenge anybody. Write an 11th commandment of the first primary 10, the Decalogue, and give an 11th commandment completely different, but just as moral. If they come from wise men, pious wise men, then write an 11th one to add to the 10. And then the rest of the 603 be predicated on that. No one has been able to do it. Why? It's because the Ten Commandments are from God. Nobody's that smart. Not even Solomon. Not David. Nobody. And this is what I want to leave you with. I'm not trying to leave anybody with doubt. I'm trying to speak the truth. And sometimes, you know, as they say, in order to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Right? This is Pastor Frank of Frank's Bible Study. Amen, amen, amen.